Annabelle, great to have that reading in front of us. Uh, this is the part of the Bible that we're going to be spending our time in tonight, and uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic passage which I am looking forward to unpacking with you. I'm going to ask God's help, uh, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are present here. You're present by your Holy Spirit as the author of this word. We pray now, Father, that you might make our hearts soft, our ears open, and that, Father, you might challenge and change us by what we hear. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to be hearing great words, great words. And I wanted to put them in the context of some other great words to kind of just lift us up and to be thinking about the kind of world that we're in. Now, because we're at New Life at Night, does anyone know what JFK stands for? I'm sorry? Kennedy is correct. Can anyone fill in the other initials? John? John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Okay, so President of the United States. I want you to listen to what he said. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. And the others too. We, we intend to go to the moon uh, in this decade. It's, it's stirring, stirring stuff. Here's another one, and uh, I'm not sure if you'll know uh, these initials. Does anyone know these initials? Martin Luther King. Have a listen to these words. I'm sure you know them, but, but have a listen. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's, it's really glorious stuff. These are great speeches. These are speeches that define these men and in many ways define this age. And what we want to do tonight is to hear Jesus speaking. Hear Jesus speaking and to try and catch uh, the emphasis, the weight, the glory, the majesty of these words, despite the fact that we could probably just as easily read past them. In order to understand it, we need to go back into our history of the Bible. This is my Bible timeline. I'm not sure if you noticed, it comes up every time we have a Bible reading. And if we roll our little blue square in, it comes to Isaiah and situates his life and time just here. Isaiah is writing at the end of the period of the kings of Israel. And he's writing to warn the nation to say, you have sinned relentlessly and now you're on the very edge of exodus and exile where you're going to lose the holy land. You're going to be kicked out and you're going to go away in exile. And so Isaiah's writing to warn them about what is about to happen. And so we see uh, in two places the kind of vibe that uh, Isaiah is presenting for them. He certainly presents judgment, but he presents hope and the picture of what Israel should be. If we see in Isaiah 58, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, says God, to loose the chains of injustice 
and untie the, co- the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Now, for those of you who are sitting here thinking he's talking about eggs, okay, it's not what he's talking about. A yoke is the thing that goes over the top of an oxen that ties it to the plow. And it became a symbol of slavery and being enslaved. So when he says he's going to break the yoke, it's going to set people free. There's, there's another passage, which is one that was read for us by Annabelle just before in Isaiah 61. Oh, not by Annabelle. Yes, great. Uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, he says in verse six, uh, chapter 61, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And if you think about it, this idea of release is kind of social transformation. Those in captivity are going to be set free. And the picture of what the world will look like when Isaiah 61 is uh, lived out is a little bit like a moonshot. It's, it's, it's so far away, it seems extraordinary that it could ever come to pass. And 700 years did pass. 700 years. Does anyone know what the date was 700 years ago? Anyone do their maths? Come on. Who's got it? Is that pretty good? One that's 1319. Do you know many people who are alive in 1319? It's an extraordinary amount of time. It's an unimaginable amount of time ago. 700 years had passed and then something takes place in Galilee. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. It's a time when hope was running out. Now, I don't know if you're an Australian cricket fan. Um, it seems that we've had a, uh, a long period of waiting. And uh, any time that happens, you start to hear rumours of little, little seeds coming up, little hopes that we might have. And so I read this article the other day, keep an eye on Josh Philippe. He's the baby-faced batsman of Australia's future. So we're, we're longing, we're looking forward to someone who'll be our saviour. Well, in a much more glorious way. That was what Israel was like. Have a look with me at verses 14 to 15 in chapter 4 of Luke. Remember last week we saw that Jesus had been tempted and then we pick him up in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. It's pretty remarkable. Jesus comes back into Galilee after his temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. So God is working mightily through him. And he's working through him in his preaching such that everyone praised him. It's a pretty good time to be Jesus, really. Everyone is praising him. And we wonder, I speculate, whether it was just preaching or whether maybe there were some miracles as well. But, but suffice to say, the Spirit was powerfully working and that meant the reputation of Jesus was filtering out through the whole of Galilee. Have you seen that bloke? Have you seen that bloke? Have you heard the guy who spoke? And so his, rep, his reputation is coming out. And we see that maybe a new day is dawning for the broken house of Israel. Will something happen? Has God forgotten us or is he coming to rescue us? And so we see in verses 16 to 17 what happens next. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. 
And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. A couple of things to just quickly note. I think this is worth noting for us, church. Uh, You'll see who is Jesus. Do you remember from last week? Heaven was torn open, the spirit descended, and a voice came from heaven. And the voice said, you are my, you're my son whom I love, my love son. With you I am well pleased. Who's Jesus? He's the son of God. But the bit I want you to note is, have a look. Jesus on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue, verse 16, as was his custom. It'd be really easy for us just to skim past that. Have you met anyone who says to you, oh, it's okay to be a Christian, but I don't need to go to church? ever heard that before? Okay, how many of us are the Son of God? Not very many, by the way, just to save you for wandering too much. We're not, okay? But I want you to see that the custom of the Son of God was to be in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. So when we meet people who say, I don't need to go to church, my answer would be, oh, that's okay. Obviously, you're better than Jesus. It's crazy, isn't it? The Son of God, did he know the Father? Of course he did. Did he know the Word of God? Of course he did. And yet there he is, making it his custom to be in church. Now I'm talking to you guys and you're here, so well done, gold tick and star for you. But the point is, is it your custom? It was for the Son of God. And when he got to the synagogue, the synagogue had a service shape. And what I mean by that is they would start with prayers. You you can find this written down uh, in uh, writings from the time. They basically had 18 prayers that they would pray at the start of the service. Prayer, 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 prayer. And as they did it, someone summarized that, that maybe the Lord's Prayer is a condensing of these prayers that are prayed at the start of the service. So he prays these prayers, and then there's an Old Testament reading, because it's all Old Testament, isn't there? Uh, It comes from the law, first five books, and then probably there was a reading from the prophets too. But when you have an idea of this synagogue, I'm not sure what you have in mind. Here's a picture of one that was um, excavated. Now you can see it's not a very big building. It's not a very big building. It's the place where the local faithful people hang out. And can, can you see where they sit around the outside? If we build it up a little, and you can see this is a reconstruction, you can see it's actually a pretty humble building. It's not really or, you know, ornate or anything like that. It's got a roof and it's got seats, but it's a holy place. It's the place the people of God in the village gather. And they gather to hear the word of God. And, and so we see, we see uh, that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And I'm speculating that maybe there had been a reading before Jesus had stood up. But it, but it says here, maybe it was Isaiah 58. This is my guess. It was Isaiah 58. And then it says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it was written. Now, I don't know if you know, they didn't have Bibles like this. They had scrolls. And I want to tell you about the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. There is a thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of that? Okay. Clay pots about this big kept in caves in the very dry, very arid areas of Israel and they found this is called the Great Scroll of Isaiah and it's from almost the time of Jesus. And so here it is. Now to give you an idea of how big that is, it's actually seven meters from end to end. Isaiah is a big book, right? 
Seven metres of Isaiah there. Now, the reason I'm saying I think potentially another reading happened before is because in the quote we're about to get, part of it is from Isaiah 58 and part of it is from, from Isaiah 61. And so maybe it had been at 58 and then he scrolled it through to 61, which is cool because if he was handed the scroll at chapter 1, verse 1, seven metres would take a while to get through. Are you with me? So anyway, that's speculation. I don't know. But it says he found the place where it was written. Now, do you notice that it went that direction? Do you know that's the way Hebrew goes? Okay, Doug does. I know he does. So the scripture goes that way. So it's right at the end there where chapter 61 is. And I want you to see what happens in there. You know, John the Baptist had been sent to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight paths for God. And he was clearing a way that God had been laying down for at least 700 years. The Messiah was going to come. And here is the preparation coming to fruition. Have a look with me at verses 18 to 19. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me, he says. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It's fantastic. He's unveiling something old, a plan that had been in place for 700 years, but he's doing something new. He's doing something brand new. He's going to say that the Messiah is turning up. The Messiah has come. He's going to say the year of Jubilee has come. Has anyone heard of the year of Jubilee before? The year of Jubilee is the year where debts are cancelled, where slaves are set free, where property is returned to its rightful owners. It happens every, how often, Doug? Every 50 years, Jubilee happens. Okay? And Jesus is saying now is the Jubilee. Now is the year of the Lord's favour. And who is his favour on? Who is God going to favour in this day? Well, surprise, surprise, it's the least. It's the people you won't expect to be in the favour of God. And so Jesus unveils this extraordinary thing. Now I want you to see what happens. There's a really great little line here which gives me the idea that, uh, that somebody had seen this happen. Have, have a look with me at, uh, at verses uh, 20 to 21. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, listen, uh, when we finish our reading, okay, unless you made a complete botch of it, people don't really follow you when you've finished the reading and you sit down. Is that right? You've done your bit, you've had your time up the front. And now you sit down and no one's paying any attention anymore. And what this says is Jesus sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why is that? Because they stood to read and they sat to teach. When Jesus sits down, he's sitting down to teach. And the people are absolutely all in. What is he going to say? What is he going to say? Because he missed a line. I love a sunburnt. 
Okay, that's right. But if I leave it hanging, you're going country, country, country. It's a long way to the top if you want to. Okay, some of you don't know that you need to rock and roll. That's okay. Uh, I'd love to give you... uh, I'm trying to think of another song that I can um, make this happen with. Um, But here's the thing. When you know the line that's coming, the stop is weird. I love a sunburnt. It's just not the time to stop. You've got the second bit, a sunburnt country. You know that there's another line coming. And Jesus had stopped that. If you're, if you're familiar with Isaiah 61, and the people surely were, Jesus had stopped that to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and left the end of the line out. Because if you're in Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God is what it says. The second line that they were waiting for is the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And the reason the eyes of everyone were on him is because they're going, what have you done? Because for them, for them, um, can you hit escape? Uh, Michael, can you hit escape and get me back, please, mate? Somehow it's jumped off. Um, Because for the people who were in this setting, okay, the idea of missing the vengeance of our God. Hit escape, come out, press play again. If you can do that, that'd be great. Michael, thank you, because it won't go forward. One more slide. There we go. Thank you. Um, because for the people who were listening, vengeance equaled justice. So we are, we are all in for the year of the Lord's favour. But if you don't say, and the day of vengeance of our God, we're going, so you don't want to overthrow the Romans? Doesn't God care about the nation? And so there's this sense that there's something missing. But I want you to see Jesus is doing something extraordinary. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then verse 21, it says, He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 700 years they've been waiting. 700 years they had been longing. And now a man is standing in a synagogue in, in, um, in Nazareth and he's saying, It's today. Today is the year of the Lord's favour. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's an extraordinary moment. Now, I want to tell you about my friend Dave. Have I told you about my friend Dave before? I think I have. Dave is the former Israeli ambassador. That's kind of just an an, an unusual connection to this passage. But he's a former um, Israeli ambassador. Uh, he's also the guy who was running for Wentworth after Malcolm Turnbull was turfed out. Lots of people say that he's got a really good chance of being a Prime Minister of Australia at some point in the future. And that's fine, because there's a bloke called Dave standing next to John Howard and all those things are being said of him. But I went to school with Dave. He's Dave. And if I met Dave on the street, Dave would say, Hey, Stuart, how are you going? And I'd say, Hi, Dave. Saw you on TV. That's a little weird. Were you hanging out with uh, Johnny there? I'm not a homie with Johnny, but... What's happening in Nazareth is a Dave moment. It's a Dave moment. Have a look what I mean. Have a look at verses 22 and following. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Here's where everything changes. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. 
And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. You see, what's happened in Nazareth is there's some arm folding and there's some people going, hey, we know you, bro. You're Joey's boy. I've got a table your dad made. I collected the chickens when they got out that day with you. I know you. You can't be the fulfillment of 700 years of the hope of Israel. It's not possible. It's not possible. And so if you want to make great claims, we require great proof. And so they tell him, hey, do what you did in Capernaum. Give us the Capernaum show now. We want to see all these miracles. We want to see you do extraordinary stuff. And Jesus' answer is really striking. It's really striking. He says, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story about a faithless nation. See, Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the whole of the Old Testament. And he was sent at a time when the people of God were putting their hands over their ears and saying, no, 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 God, we don't want to listen to you. We're going to go after idols. We're going to pursue whatever we want. And Elijah, it says in 1 Kings 18 and 19, left Israel and went away from all of the widows, all of the problems of Israel, and he was found in Zarephath. And you guys go, oh, Zarephath, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're familiar with Zarephath. Where's Zarephath? Well, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath. If you look in a map of Israel, Zarephath is over the border and up north on the coast. It's far away from Israel. And this man was sent not to faithless Israel, but to a faithful widow outside and beyond the borders of Israel. And to finish it off, he speaks about the time of Elisha, who followed on from Elijah, more unfaithful Israelites, and says there were heaps of people who had leprosy, but God wasn't concerned to save any of the faithless Israelites. What did he save? A Syrian army general called Naaman, who was faithful. Now guys, we could tell that story right today, and if you told people in Israel that God was favouring a Syrian general, how do you reckon that would go down? Well, I'll tell you how it went down in this place. Essentially, Jesus was saying, if you won't receive me, Nazareth, if you won't receive me, I want you to know the track record of God is that he will love faith-filled foreigners and he'll scorn your faithlessness. Fold your arms, treat me cynically, that's fine. But know that God will move on to the foreigners. Now, what happens if you speak the truth? What happens if you stand up? What are the things that... What, well, we know what happened to JFK after this picture, don't we? And here's the balcony. This was 1963. Is that right? Yep. And 1968, I think Peter told me just before, was when MLK was gunned down. You can see him. You can't probably see him. He's lying on the ground here. And the people who are around him are pointing across to the shooter who had shot him to say that's where he is. 
What happens to great men in this environment here, this very contentious environment in America? They're killed. I want you to see what happens to Jesus as he tells the people of God that if you will be faithless, God will turn to the Gentiles. Have a look what happens. All the people in the synagogue, verse 28, were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Why, we wonder. I reckon a whole bunch of us would say, hey, you know, if only I got to see Jesus face to face, I would believe. And here's what I'd say to you tonight, church. If we were there, we would have crucified him, we would have chased him out of town, and we would have willingly thrown him off the cliff because that's what sinful hearts do. Don't think you'd be any better than the people in the town of Nazareth. The people who met Jesus, who saw him face to face, wanted to kill him. Why? Why did they turn on him? They were very happy to hear the announcement of the year of God's favour. That's good. But when they heard of God's inclusion of the faithful Gentiles, it was utterly unacceptable. And they decided that they needed to kill him. Well, what should we do with this passage? What should we do with this great announcement? First thing we need to do is we need to recognize our spiritual state, our true spiritual trait. If this is going to be good news, and I hope it is for you tonight, if this is going to be good news, I need to tell you three hard things about yourself. Number one, number one, sin has made us a prisoner. Have a look what it says in Romans 7.23. But I see a law at work in me, waging war against the soul of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Sin traps us. And, and, and here's the test. I want you to decide you won't sin anymore. And I'll see you next week and we'll do our confession again, won't we, church? Sin traps us. It causes us to be imprisoned. Jesus says in John 9, 41, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Sin blinds us. We think we're good enough and we're not. I'm better than that person, we say to ourselves, but we're blind to our own sin. Sin blinds us. Thirdly, in Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel talks about what it feels like to carry sin. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is God speaking, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How can we live? Sin oppresses us. It weighs us down. It gives us a burden in our hearts. We were trapped. We were blind. We were oppressed. And here in this word, we have a better word because Jesus stands up and he says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. You want to know the only way to freedom from sin and its cost? It's in Jesus and in the year of the Lord's favor. And so we need to recognize what today is like. What is today like there's two passages I'd love to show you about what today is like. Um, do you know John 3.16? Okay, who's got it? We'll go with the, uh, the guys in the back row over here. Who's got it? Who can give me John 3.16? 
Outstanding sky, thank you. Do you know that you're better than two morning services? He went, that's what happened this morning. Thank you, sky, fantastic. But here's the thing. Do you know John 3.17? Do you know John 3.17? Great if you do. Have a look up here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Isn't this beautiful? And so what I want you to know is that today is the day of salvation. Are you burdened? Are you trapped? Are you blinded? Do you want to be free? Today is a great day to get saved. Really, now is a great day to be saved. Because God is ready. There's an amazing passage in 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, It says this, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you now... Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. See, it's today. It should be a day of proclamation. If you know John 3.16, then you want to join me because we're about seeing new life come to every home. We want to be giving the message of new life. If you know that God is ready to save, that he sent his son not to condemn, then today is a great day. Why did Jesus stop with proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and not say the day of vengeance of our God? Why didn't he say that? Do you know why? Because the day of vengeance is still to come. There will be a day of vengeance of our God, but we are in this precious, precious time when we can know the favor of God. Be saved today because the day of vengeance is still to come. I want us to recognize our cynicism. And um, I, I don't know, this morning there were lots of people folding their arms. Hi, Joy. Hi, Naomi, how are you going? Uh, some people feel really comfortable folding their arms, and if you're one of those arm-folding people, which I don't mind doing every now and again, try uncrossing them and feel how vulnerable you are all of a sudden. It's like, oh, wow. But, but here's the way it works. Um, when, I've got my, when I've got my arms folded, typically, I'm sitting back, cool as a cucumber, and I'm watching all you guys over here. I'm not really involved, but I am judging you. I'm better than you and I'm looking at you. No, no, not you guys. Some of you are just comfortable folding your arms. But there is a, an attitude of heart that says, I'm folding my arms and I'm just watching, just checking you guys out. And there were a lot of arm-folded hearts in the synagogue in Nazareth. And I want you to think about your cynicism today. And I want to invite you, if you're a cynic, to come and check Jesus out for yourself. Come and do Jesus for the curious with me. It starts on May the 5th. And I want to ask you, what have you got to lose? Come and check Jesus out as an adult and see what he's really like. The last thing I want to encourage us from this passage is to have a look around and to recognize the faithful. Jesus did come for the Gentiles and not just for the Jews. And we have people here tonight from a whole variety of different countries and my question would be, do we recognize the diversity in the body of Christ and do we celebrate it? Would we be offended if God said, my good favor goes to the people from Papua New Guinea? My good favor goes to the people from Egypt. My good favor goes to the people from the UK. Would we be offended? And if not, how will we express the fact that we recognize God has brought together a diverse group of people to be his people? Tonight, I want to point you to these glorious words, and I want you to hear for the first time, maybe, how wonderful they are. 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I've come to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord. And it's better than a moonshot. And if we believe it, there'll be more social transformation than I ever dream. I want to leave you with these beautiful words. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious. Your son Jesus has opened the year of the Lord's favour and it hasn't closed. Father, we know that there will be a day of vengeance of our God and yet, Lord, we thank you that it is not this day. Father, might you stir our hearts so that we would respond in faith, that we would take out this good news to the poor, the blind and, the, and those in prison. Father, have mercy and save many, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there you go. That's Luke chapter 4. It's good. It's really, really good. And I hope you've enjoyed hearing about it tonight. Uh, are there any questions, things that I can follow up, clarify, things that happened in the uh, account there that you want to come back and ask me about? In our question time. Someone got a question to get us started? Because typically we have questions. We just need a Dorothy Dixer to kind of get started and then we have our question time happen. Someone got a question for us? Yes, thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Jeff, for passing the mic to Nicole. <laughs> Nicole. Yes, yeah, so the, and the day of vengeance of our God. Yes. I, I still don't get why Isaiah was writing that, like, and then they all knew that scripture, like you said, and he didn't say it. Yes. Like, what's, what? what's going on? Um, Isaiah, the end of Isaiah, is looking forward to, you might have heard me say this before, the great reversal. Israel will be downtrodden. That's what's happening. That's, that's what Isaiah's writing to. He's going to say, a foreign nation is going to come and attack you. It's going to take you away to the ends of the earth. Israel, you're going to be dirt. And yet, you're the precious people of God. Will that ever be restored? And what Isaiah's saying is there will be a day when Israel will be lifted up when there will be a king in the line of David ruling in Jerusalem and all the world will flock to Jerusalem and see him. But on that day, all who are enemies of God will be destroyed. Now, what's the day he's talking about? Judgment day, hands down. Great work, Claire. And that day is still to come. And so Isaiah gets a foretaste of it. And Isaiah doesn't know everything. He doesn't know that Jesus is going to come. He doesn't know exactly what it'll look like, but he gets an understanding that God will have a day of great reversal, a day of lifting up where Israel will be made king among the nations again. He just doesn't know the new Israel will include people from every nation on the planet. It's a glorious picture that he only sees in part. So is that why Jesus didn't say those words? Because yep. he was just coming to set us free, not exactly. do that. Exactly. So Jesus yes. will return to judge. He will return to judge. Judgment day is coming, make no mistake. Those who oppose Jesus will be utterly destroyed. There is a day of vengeance of our God, which is terrifying, isn't it? But it's made bearable by the fact that today is the year of the Lord's favour. So get saved today, because the other day is still to come. Make sense? Yeah, great. Thanks, Thanks Nicole. Is there another question? Thank you, Claire. It's a great question. 
Why did God choose not to punish us because of what we had done? The Bible would say the answer to that is four letters long. Love. Because he loved us, Claire, and he gave us what we didn't deserve. Love and grace. God loved us when we were far from him, and he gave us what we don't deserve. And that, that's the heart behind this magnificent thing behind me, the cross. Thanks, Claire. Any other questions? Do you want to ask me how Jesus did the Jedi mind trick on the top of the hill? Come on, you're all secretly wondering, aren't you? Have a look at verse 30. He's been taken to the brow of the hill, and then what does he do? But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They intended to kill him. And I was, I was speculating with um, Ali uh, in the morning. So here's a crowd so angry, they're ready to literally throw him off the cliff and then build a pile of rocks on top of him as they chuck them down. So what happens? Well, Jesus turns around and he starts looking at people in the eye. I'm speculating here like mad, but he starts looking at people in the eye. How long did he live with them for? Does anyone know? How, long, how old was Jesus at this point? He's about 30, right? These people had been in this small town. I don't know how big it was. A couple of hundred people max. And he goes, Naomi, I remember you. Janet, I know you. Nelson, I know you. And as the Son of God looks into the eyes of these people that want to kill him, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? And so I think what happened was the, the crazy mob got to the top of the hill and Jesus just turned around and looked at them. And one by one, they realized how small they were, that he was a totally righteous man, that he had never sinned, and that it would be a grievous thing to throw him off the cliff. And I reckon they just parted and he walked away because they came to their senses. As opposed to, this is not the Messiah you're looking for. Okay, I'll stop there. Jesus is awesome. Let's uh, look forward to uh, getting into uh, more of it next week.